Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. that define your story beyond your life like the day they arrived signs of what might be called first contact the object pack your bags you're at the top of everyone's list when it comes to translations priority one more objects have landed around the world this is one of 12 i'm never going to be able to speak their words got two days figure something out we need to make sure that they understand the difference between a weapon and a tool. We've got 21 hours before they start global war. So how do we clarify their intentions? I go back in. What Dr. Banks is doing in the film is what any linguist would do, right? She's looking for patterns and she's uh, working together with these heptopods in this case to, you know, try to start with small words for basic concepts and then build up sentences from there. Human. I'm human. language has a list of obligatory distinctions, male, female, definite, indefinite, singular, plural, past, present. This is the stock of categories that the human mind uses to schematize experience. When we talk about universal grammar, we of course don't actually mean the entire universe. We weren't thinking that far ahead. Hello and welcome to season three of Science-ish. Woo-hoo. I'm Rick Edwards. I'm here with Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. Still doing that as his intro. <laughs> well, why not? Uh, in case you don't already know, which I have to say is very unlikely because it's all we talk about. We've got a book out, haven't we, Michael? Oh, I thought we weren't going to talk about this. Oh, no, no, we're not going to talk about it, but just to get it out of the way early. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So we have yes. got a book out. You don't have to buy it. No, that's not true. You do have to buy it. Now, moving on to the podcast, which is what we're doing now. This is the part of the show, obviously, when I usually say, we all know by now, the format of the show. But, get ready for this. Drum roll. We've decided to change the format. So we've been reading some reviews of the show, all of them glowing, obviously. And it turns out that some listeners think that, if anything, we do too much in a single episode. And in essence, 
we've made the cardinal error of leaving the people wanting less. With that in mind, gone are the three questions, replaced with one question, one scientist, and then us sort of chatting. So that bit, that, that bit, bit stays remains. the same. Us sort of chatting remains. But one question, one scientist. So it's going to be pithier, snappier. It's going to be an absolute dream. Are you, are you happy, Brooksy? I'm so excited about this. I mean, I, I love leaving people wanting more. Yeah, and you are a famously lazy man. <laughs> um, so anything that reduces your workload, you're delighted with. So we thought we'd kick off the new series and the new year by giving, yet again, the people what they want. And we're going to look at their most requested film, which is... Arrival. Is that all you're going to say? Oh, sorry, did you want more? I mean, you asked yeah, me what the so. name of the film was. And, yeah, uh, but I thought you would expand upon it. Oh, okay, so this is a, this is a great film. Uh, this is a, a film that's... That's, a, that's enough, actually. Uh, <laughs> no, go on, carry on. So the film is about uh, the arrival of aliens on Earth, and the army basically brings in a linguist to try and talk to them. And so it's actually a film all about linguistics, which I know has you on the edge of your seats. I've got to say that it's a phenomenally good film and the linguistics are fascinating uh what is our question going to be then so our question is going to be a, a very science-ish question what language will aliens speak ah yeah yeah so it is a classic science yeah. question because without one to uh, give too much away i suspect we're not going to come up with an answer spoiler we? alert <laughs> we don't know and who have we pinned down for a chat for this well, we've only got the scientific advisor to arrival yes in the film Arrival, the heptapods have two completely distinct languages. They have a spoken language and they have a written language. But unlike what we find in human languages, these are completely separate. This is Jessica Kuhn, an associate professor of linguistics at McGill University in Canada. So in human languages, writing systems are always based on a spoken language. And there are many different kinds of writing systems that we find in human languages, whether they're based on syllables or based on individual sounds or written with characters. But writing systems always are based on a spoken language. And a really interesting part of the movie Arrival is this is apparently not the case for the heptapods. Heptapod A is their spoken language, and Heptapod B is their written language. And as you see in the film, they start off trying to understand what's going on with the spoken language. But one thing I really like about this movie is that the aliens are not your typical you know, Star Trek or Star Wars aliens with two legs and two arms and a human vocal tract, but maybe they're just different colors or have bumps on their heads. And the sounds that they make are not anything like the sounds that we make, which is probably more realistic when you when you think about what we might actually find in outer space. I have something I need you to translate for me. Now you heard it. What do you make of it? This presents a big challenge from a linguistic point of view. We don't know 
you know, which of the sounds that they're making are actually speech sounds versus just, say, breathing. We don't know if human ears can hear the full range of sounds that they're making. And we can't reproduce these sounds. And so this is an important part of linguistic fieldwork. We want to, you know, both try to understand what they're saying, but then in order to test our theories about how the language works, we want to be able to reproduce sentences and see if we're understood, right? See if these are good sentences in the language. And so being unable to reproduce the sounds that the heptapods are making without, you know, complex recording and playing back is a big barrier. And so next, uh, Amy Adams's character discovers that there's this other way that the heptapods communicate, which is by uh, these sort of fancy blobby squid ink type uh, circular blobs that come out in the film. They're a visually really neat part of the film. And they sort of appear all at once and they're very swirly. And it's unlike spoken language or unlike our written languages, which are constrained by time. When I speak, I have to say one word before another word before another word. Even if I'm having many ideas at once, I have to decide an order to put them in. And that's the same for writing. But apparently, but apparently the heptapods language is not constrained in this way. And without giving too much away, that, of course, plays a big role in the movie. The thing here is the heptapods are not making it easy for Amy Adams, are they? Not initially, no. When she I don't first... think at any point they're making it easy. <laughs> Maybe not easy. It does get easier. I mean, when they first sort of make their sounds, you just think, oh, this is going nowhere. How are you going to interpret that? I mean, it's incredibly difficult. No wonder they called in, you know, a, a top linguist. But she makes this amazing discovery, or, or maybe it's just like an obvious thing to say, okay, we write stuff, you know, and then showing them some writing and see if they respond with some writing. And that's where the breakthrough comes. You know, we talk about language as if it's just one thing, but actually written and spoken language is a very different thing. With humans, obviously, speech came before written language, right? Yeah, so so we think, you know, basically speech probably came with the first humans. You know, we started grunting, communicating, working out how to indicate to one another, you know, what we meant by something. But we only started writing stuff down sort of about 5,000 years ago, really. So this is a really hard thing to get your head around because our spoken and written language are obviously tied together quite clearly. Yeah. And what Amy Adams finds out is that heptapod A and heptapod B, their spoken, their sound language and their visual language are unrelated. And we don't really see anything like that in human communication. Not exactly, no. I mean, we've got the problem that ours are sort of built up of units, you know, from the alphabet. So our written language, alphabetic language is, is kind of, you know, you can see where it comes from and you can just build up concepts, you know, by putting letters together. And you have other types of language, which is logographic script. So like Mandarin. Yeah, and you can have a sort of basic structural element and then you can add bits to it to kind of change the meaning of whatever that 
thing was. But, you know, it's kind of developed from the spoken language at the same time. And the order is important. Yeah, so it's not true of all languages, but certainly not all spoken languages. There are some where you can be, like, completely free with word order. But basically, you have to have an order. You know, with this alien thing, it doesn't, you know, all happen at once, effectively. You know, with time is irrelevant. And so, you know, when we try and decode a language... You know, we will assume that there is a specific word order, there's a reason for the word order, and if we get that wrong, we might not be un- properly understood. So mm. I think this is a, another order of magnitude more difficult, effectively. I guess it's just conceptually hard, isn't it? Because I'm wondering if, you know, something like hieroglyphics, is that directly related to the spoken language? And I guess it's hard to know because we don't know what yeah, the spoken language know. No, exactly. was. But I'm assuming that hieroglyphs, and this is real uh, low-level knowledge stuff from me, (laughs) but they are designed to look like the thing. So if I want to have a a hieroglyph for a house, I'll draw something that looks a bit like a house, and it's developed from that, which is sort of, to be fair, quite similar to Mandarin script. And so therefore, is it fair to say that the written language and the spoken language are slightly separate? Yeah, and there are elements. So there's a language, uh, the kanji logographic script, that's used by certain Japanese and, and Chinese groups, they can both read the logographic script, but the way it's translated to words in their spoken language is completely different. So they wouldn't understand each other oh, so they except could be, through writing. They could be pen pals. <laughs> so they could be pen pals, but when they meet up, they're going to be dreadfully disappointed. So hang on, hang on. So they, they can read it and understand the meaning. Yeah. So this isn't like me looking at Portuguese, which is in the same letters and not understanding no. it. So they can read it, but then if they try to speak then nothing. Yeah. Because they're, they're pronouncing it in totally yeah, different yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah, because they're sort of interpreting it in different, in different ways. ways. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you read Portuguese, you know that you see the letter D and it's D and you know the sound that's going to come from that. So you could read it out really badly and the Portuguese person would probably understand you. But, you know, with this kanji, it's not broken up Sounds into like elements. Sounds like you've been like on that. holiday with me. <laughs> 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 My <God> phrasebook. <laughs> My alien phrasebook. <laughs> In this universe, we process time linearly, forward. But outside of our space-time, from what would be a fourth-dimensional perspective, time wouldn't exist. Another massive difference with the alien language, written language, and ours, is that it isn't constrained by time, so it just all happens at once and then sort of feels like it disappears. I think it's, it's an interesting idea, though, that you have this kind of language that appears and you, you, know, you can put it out as, as ink in water and then it just disappears again because our whole basis of our civilization has been about recording our language on paper or whatever else. And that is a basis of building civilization, building technology. So it makes me wonder how they managed to you know, create this amazing technology in which they came to Earth. But from their point of view, it's not appearing and disappearing, is it? Because their perception of time is not like ours. They're not constrained by sequential stuff. So it, it hasn't just appeared and disappeared. It's just, uh, it, it's effective. It would be like it was always there. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to exist outside of time flowing effectively. So that's one of my so big problems. So small-minded. It's, it's one of the things that held me back in life. <laughs> it goes without saying, by the way, that I really loved the design of the, of the heptapods because they're quite octopusy, aren't they? Yeah, aren't they, though? I knew you would. Yeah. 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 We struggle to kind of understand what an alien language would be like, but it's the same with humans. We don't really understand 
why it is that we're able to produce language, which brings us on to a thing called universal grammar. So a remarkable finding of linguistics is that when we look across human languages, we find that they share an awful lot of properties in common. So even though languages sound different and their grammars are different from one another, there are certain characteristics that we could imagine a language having that we simply don't find. And the other remarkable thing is that babies and little kids learn languages effortlessly and without explicit instruction. So as parents or as teachers, we often feel like we're teaching kids how to speak, but really they're doing this on their own and they're doing it effortlessly and easily, which, you know, when you compare this to trying to learn a language as an adult uh, is quite impressive. And so uh, universal grammar is just the name given to what it is, this unique human capacity for language. So whatever it is that allows babies and children to learn languages quickly and effortlessly and without explicit instruction. Something interesting about the movie is that, you know, when we talk about universal grammar, we, of course, don't actually mean the entire universe. <laughs> we weren't thinking that far ahead, right? We mean human languages. And this really seems to be unique to humans and unique to sort of our own human genetic endowment. And we wouldn't expect to find the same properties that we find in human languages in a non-human life form. In advance of experience, the child is already equipped with an understanding of the basic structure of any human language. So when did we first come up with this idea of universal grammar then, Brooksy? So in the 1830s, uh, William von Humboldt came oh, up yeah. with a kind of basic idea that there must be something sort of that makes you know, languages kind of come out of your brain in much the same way because everyone has this sort of... Basically, all the languages that people have encountered, uh, certainly at that point, had some kind of structure or, or people felt they had a structure that was all quite similar. All human languages have something that is sort of noun-y and something that is sort of verby. They all do. So you go ahead to the sort of 1950s and you've got this guy called Noam Chomsky emerging. There are fixed invariant principles, fixed invariant structural principles, which are simply part of the human biological endowment who says it's encoded in our genetics, an instinct for grammar, which is where language comes out from. And, and you know, he calls this the universal grammar. And he says that all human brains have an instinct to create a language with a grammatical structure that is essentially the same. And you know, the, the different languages just come from different kind of inputs onto that basic universal grammar. Those things which are true of all languages are the candidates for what the child comes into the world knowing about the nature of the language. What's the evidence for that then? It's really controversial. So in recent years, it's sort of been fading away in terms of how widely accepted it is. But there are, you know, sort of intriguing bits of evidence. Like there was a group of deaf children were put together in Nicaragua in the 1980s. And they were put together in one school. And they basically developed their own sign language. And this sign language, as it developed, and it sort of went on down the generations as younger kids came to the school, they picked it up, they elaborated on it, and became more and more complex. And that actually had a kind of very similar grammatic structure to, you know, other languages. So, you know, Chomsky would seize on that and say, well, look, you know, it shows that there's no input from outsiders, there's no input from adults. You know, it's literally them developing their own language, and it's got this kind of grammatical structure which we recognize 
and can classify. And so there's little things like that that make it sort of seem like an appealing idea, at least. Languages can have verbs then objects or objects then verbs, but those are two possibilities that every language has one or the other of. So what do the people who disagree with Professor Chomsky say? Well, they say basically there's no evidence. You know, you can't go into the brain and look for the genetics of language and actually sort of proof that all these languages are the same kind of isn't proof that they come out of a genetic thing. It could just be, you know, the way humans learn, Mm. for instance, is going to produce you a kind of grammar. So it's, it's not about the structure of the brain. It's not about a genetic tendency. It's literally about the way the brain learns produces something that gives you this kind of universal grammar. And lots of people have been to other tribes, tribes around the world and sort of studied their languages and said, you know, the grammar is actually significantly different. You know, there are places in Australia where they don't have word order sort of constrictions that we have. Uh, There are other places where, you know, there are issues with how they conceptualize, you know, different things. And so the language sort of doesn't have many of the elements that we have. So, you know, we've got sort of evidence against it, but it's still basically a big controversy. How would you go about trying to prove that there was a sort of genetic endowment factor in universal grammar? How would I do it? Yes. Oh, well, I would, as ever, just put a load of babies on a remote desert island. That is your answer to everything. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Why won't you let me do it? Irrespective of the question. I mean, ha- <laughs> oh, it's, it's Brooksy with his babies on an island. We can yeah. answer everything if we just do this. Um, this is the thing. You know, how do you isolate people from the cultural influences? Uh, how do you isolate these children if you want to see how their language develops from all the stuff that's around them? You, you can't separate the culture and the environment from the language. But I figure that most linguists would find it hard to dispute that universal grammar exists in some sense because... We live in a world where all of the creatures, us, um, and I suppose mm, at another level, other animals on Earth, but I guess that's slightly more contentious because you'd argue they don't really have a language, but we have a you know, similar, very similar evolutionary past and therefore we'll have you know, kind of quite similar neural architectures and our resulting representations of the world mean that there are going to be common elements to our language. Yeah. Because we've evolved in the same place. Yeah, so effectively it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Of course we all have this commonality because we come from the same genetic stock. It's convergent evolution, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is, as you know... Which is your favourite subject. absolute favourite. <laughs> this is my babies on an island. <laughs> <laughs> so this is one of the difficulties that Amy Adams has, isn't it? You've got aliens that have evolved in a completely different environment, you know, different part of the universe, or maybe even a different universe if there's no time constraints. And, you know, it's a bit like, you know, when you've got a dolphin in, in water or a cuttlefish you know, in the ocean sort of, you know, communicating via different modalities. How do you even begin to interpret that? Is that a new symbol? I can't tell. Dr. Banks? Hey, hey, hey. What are you doing? Yeah, I'm fine. You need to see me. Take it off her head, Mr. Dr. Banks. Are you okay? You're risking contamination. You need to see me. Dr. Banks. She's walking towards the screen.
So the interesting thing is, I mean, you know, we've been talking about how the environment might shape language and everything, but actually what Amy Adams discovers in the film is that the language shapes her, at least her perception and her relationship with the environment that she lives in. So, um, Well, yeah, her cognitive function changes so that she starts to have this odd relationship with time. Exactly. So th- this is something um, that, that's called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. And Jeremy Renner has this great quote in the film where he says, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis says that if you immerse yourself in another language, you can rewire your brain. And that's a physicist's take on biology right there. Mm, and, and sorry, what was the accent? Yeah, I don't know. The Sapir-Whorf hypothesis uh, was developed by... A linguist named Edward Sapir and his student Benjamin Lee Worf, and it's also called linguistic relativity. So this, so this is, is the idea that the, the language we speak either constrains or determines how we can think or a particular view of the world. So according to this hypothesis, speaking a different language might have big effects on how you see the world, your ability to think certain thoughts. And when it comes to human languages, this has been largely debunked, right? So there's no evidence that speaking, say, English versus French versus Mandarin has any major effects on the way people think or the way they see the world. This isn't to say that people don't have different, say, cultural beliefs or worldviews. It just is to say that those worldviews are not directly the consequence of grammatical properties of their languages, but rather of culture more generally. Though there are really interesting scientific studies that do find small effects in things like reaction time, say, for languages that have different color terms or different shape words. So there's a really interesting body of scientific literature, and it does find small effects in some areas, but not to the extent of, you know, how people see time or how people relate to one another. Um, There's no evidence for differences at that level. It's it's the theory that... uh... The language you speak determines how you think and... Yeah, it affects how you see everything. It was, uh... I'm curious, are you dreaming in their language? I mean, I've had a few dreams, but I don't... I don't think that that makes me unfit to do this job. The Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, of course, plays a very big role in the film because learning this alien language has big consequences for Dr. Banks's view of the world or her cognitive abilities, let's say. And, you know, it's science fiction, right? So even though we don't have evidence that speaking a different human language has any major effect on the way we see the world... When it comes to learning an alien language, <laughs> we really have we have no idea, right? So I think what the film does really well is it really, you know, it makes you think about how important language is and how different an alien language could be from our own. Like I said, we have no reason to think that um, an alien's language would be anything like ours. In fact, it would be very surprising because so much of human language really seems to be tied to, you know, sort of specific properties of being human. So I've definitely heard people say things before, like, because Eskimos have 
a hundred words for snow or whatever, that that means they experience snow in a slightly different way to us. Yeah. And that is a load of old tosh, right? Kind of is a load of old tosh. There are elements to it that are interesting and sort of slightly proven that, that people have different sort of cultural shifts in their kind of language they use and the experience they have because of the language they use. So snow, I mean, this idea that Eskimos have all these words for snow and we only have snow. Well, we don't only have snow. We talk about drifts and flurries and, you know, snow banks and snow on the ground. And we talk about blizzards. Like you can't have snow bank and snow blizzard. They both have the word snow in it. No, but we talk about snow banks, don't we, on the side of the road? Yeah, but it's got the word snow in it. Snow. But it's to do with the way we construct our language. So we can say, you know, we'll have a bank of snow, and that's one concept. And the Eskimos might put that into all one word, a single word that's equivalent of bank of snow. That doesn't mean they're having like a... <laughs> I love the fact that you are saying <laughs> I can't believe that you made me say that again. But... But, so how? Just get, let me get this clear. Michael. So the Eskimos <laughs> have a word that just means bank of snow. Just means bank of snow. What is the word? Uh, I have no idea. Hmm. But the uh, point is that do they you know that it exists. <laughs> yes, I do definitely because <laughs> they have so many words for it. Yeah, but they must have a bank. Of must snow. have a bank of snow. So, so all it is is a, is a construction of language that we use several words where they use one. So it doesn't mean that they somehow have this special experience of snow. So then on the other side of that, people say that actually, you know, there is some sort of evidence for this thing, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, that there is a different kind of sense of understanding things. So you have things like experiments on colour, and actually it does seem that the kind of the distinctions that you can make in colours are different depending on the culture that you come from, the language that you speak. How are we measuring this then? So we do, we do experiments on babies. So babies ah, can put, on an island? <laughs> yes, ideal. So you do experiments on babies, not yet on an island, but we know we'll get to that. And they are able to sort of, you know, from a very young age, put colours into certain categories if they look similar. So they'll say, you know, all these different types of blue are blue, effectively. Yeah, this bank of blue. This bank of blue. And then by the time you get to adults, actually, you find people in different cultures will distinguish between blues. So in Russia, they'll distinguish between different blues that in our culture, in Britain, we wouldn't make any distinction between them at all. So you do get the sense that there is some kind of influence on language and your ability to kind of perceive the world effectively because of the different culture that you grow up in. But You're not buying it, No, I'm not buying it because I think that if you sit me and a Russian guy in a room and then you show us different shades of blue effectively, I am going to be able to notice that they are different shades of blue. So I'm just perceiving it the same as him. He just happens to have words for it. Well, no, it may be that actually because he looks for different shades of blue because his language has the different kinds of blue there and you don't have the words for that thing, then he looks more carefully and interacts more with his environment. What I'm saying is that's bollocks. Well, you haven't done the experiment though, have you? I'm, I'm so going you're, to. You're imagining... Me and a Russian are going to go to an island. <laughs> you're imagining the outcome of an experiment that you haven't yet done, which yeah. is classic science, isn't it? It really yeah, is. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly the result I want, <laughs> and amazingly, it's the result I'm going to get. Well, well who'd have thunk? <laughs> How can this be used against us? Kangaroo. What is that? In 1770... Captain James Cook's ship ran aground off the coast of Australia and he led a party into the country and they met the Aboriginal people. One of the sailors pointed at the animals that hop around and put their babies in their pouch and he asked what they were and the Aborigines said kangaroo. It wasn't until later that they learned that kangaroo means I don't understand. And remember what happened to the Aborigines. A more advanced race nearly wiped them out. It's a good story. 
things. It's not true. There are uh, Aboriginal tribes in Australia where they don't have words for left and right, and they only conceptualize in terms of north, south, east, and west. Mm-hmm. And actually, their relationship with the land that they're in means that they're much better at orienting themselves and, and navigating than tribes who, who do use this kind of relative term of left and right. If you're in a maze, for instance, you know, left and right can be useful. But actually, if you're in a sort of open landscape, you know, left and right, relative to what? Relative to how I'm standing, how I was standing, you know, it's not a very useful way of doing things. You know, you could argue that their language has actually, and their conceptions that have come from their language actually help them and change the way they live in the landscape. Yeah, I'll buy that one. Thank I think you. If, you, if you drop me in the outback with a Russian and an Aborigine. <laughs> There's no blue here. <laughs> and sorry, was that Jeremy Renner again, you <laughs> This will come to be known as the accent special. <laughs> so let's try and come to some sort of conclusion then, in true science-ish fashion. I think we have absolutely no idea what language aliens will speak. (laughs) (laughs) You you amaze me. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's clear that we're we're not really ready for first contact, are we? And I wonder if our linguists out there, any linguists listening, are you really ready for first contact? Could you do this Amy Adams thing of going out there and talking to the aliens? I think the, the first thing we need to do is try and understand what language, if indeed they are using a language, dolphins are speaking, how octopuses and cuttlefish are communicating, like try and get involved with some of these other forms of communication. I mean, people um, have tried. And that's the point. We're not getting anywhere. So, the, get, Yeah, we know enough to know that dolphins talk about each other behind their backs, don't we? So yeah, we know something. Yeah. yeah. So we know something. I mean, with respect to linguists, we're just not really getting very far, are we? Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producer was Max Sanderson, with sound design by Ivor Slayer-Manley. Special thanks to Dr. Jessica Kuhn and also Frank Roop at McGill University. If you like this show, tiny if, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We want that number one spot back and we want it real bad. There's no way that accent will survive the edit. Mm, It's in. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's so in. (laughs) 